Welcome to the podcast. You are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. The coolest way to start your weekend. This week at Macy's, get great deals on fashion and home essentials. Update your wardrobe with 20% off new spring shoes and sneakers. And 20 to 50% off fresh looks for him and her. Plus, transform your space with Lux Hotel Collection bedding, now 40% off. And Macy's Star Rewards members can earn on every purchase except gift cards, services, and fees. More at Macy's.com slash Star Rewards. Savings off sale and clearance prices. Exclusions apply. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous walrus, the bulbous walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to Lifestyle Radio. The opinions expressed during this show are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of their associated organizations or Lifestyle Radio. like music, you like weed, well we gonna be good friends indeed, this is how much I like more than smoking trees, they'll make you dance the do-si-do and teach you how to achieve a grow, smoke a bowl on the 420 radio show, on Lifestyle Radio. You can see your lips moving, but I can't hear you. <laughs> Are you still muted, Marcel? No. No? Oh. The song's over. Oh. Imagine that one. Imagine you can't hear Marcel. Can't hear Marcel. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Can't hear Darcy either in a second. No. Oh, he's gonna mute oh, me. Mute me. <laughs> yeah, throw punch him. Mute you. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I just reach reach through the screen. No. Well, sorry, it's gonna... welcome to the show. We do have a doctor here, so you know. Yep. Uh, we're 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 joined today by uh, Doctor Jeffrey Block or Doc Block, as he calls himself. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Hi there, Al. Uh, Jeffrey is a doctor of cannabinoid medicine. And when Lenny came in the room and they started talking, his face lit up. <laughs> I, I always enjoy talking to MDs that are actually into 
real evidence-based medicine, alternative medicine. Well, for, and, for, for those who don't know, mind. that's for, why I get excited. There you go. For those who don't know, uh, uh, Lenny is a bona fide pharmacist. He has uh, a couple of pharmacies in, in Nova Scotia, and he is also the chief medical officer. Yeah, I, I am actually the chief. No, I'm, I'm not a physician, so I'm the chief science officer. Oh, okay. And, so you're and McCoy. I should also basically say my other title is chief operating officer of Truro Cannabis. Who who was the the chief science officer? That was Spock, wasn't it? No, yeah, Scotty. No. It was who? Was it? No, wasn't? It's Spock. Oh yeah, Spock. Spock. Yeah, Spock was the science there you officer. Go. Yeah. You got to get some uh, ears, dude. I, I have a Spock doll on my desk. <laughs> you need to get some ears one day. Yeah, yeah so, to point those ears up a bit. Cosmetic surgery. We're going to have a really good conversation tonight. I'm I'm going to sit back and smoke this doobie, and and we're going to talk with uh, but, uh, Doc Block. Je- Jeff- Jeffrey should also know that I am a PCCA compounding pharmacist that does a lot of topical pain management, and also I am a. I'm not sure, familiar, sure if he is familiar with A4M, Anti-Aging, uh, Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. Um, I am actually a fellow uh, certified with that group as well um, in anti-aging medicine as well. It's not recognized in Canada, but just something I do on the side. A4M is an interesting group, Lenny. And They're the, a very interesting group. Last, <laughs> um, it was August. They... Uh, they had postponed because of COVID a live gathering they do twice a year. They're big yeah. gatherings. They they host. Yeah, no, I go 5, all the time. 000. Yeah, five thousand. They were going to hold one in Orlando, which was convenient for me because the other one's on the West Coast, and I'm I'm in Miami. That's what you see behind me. Uh, not at this moment. It's yeah. still thick, but it's eighty degrees outside here. By the way, I'm just trying to rub that in. The, um, yeah, enjoy. Think about A4M in Orlando in this time of the year. It's in the springtime. They canceled it because of COVID. So they held it virtually in August, and uh, I was actually speaking there for the first time on the subject that I'm with you today on. They're, so, they're um, actually, um, they're very pro, uh, they're more CBD pro than THC, but they're very pro cannabis. Well, I, I haven't, you, you guys are not my normal audience when I when I give talks and things. Yeah. So while I'm delighted to be here with you today, this evening for a couple hours, I listened in to for the first time last week on your show. And one of the things you brought up with some questions about Lenny was COVID and cannabinoids in particular. Oh, I'd love to hear your uh, theories. Well, I I addressed this and I gave a 30 minute talk that was part of the uh, A4M's uh, semi-annual meeting in in August. And it's available, you know, as far as it's archived. So you guys archive a lot, but that that's a subject talk that's been hot this year and, is relevant and was uh, actually encouraged through A4M and another group, the American Osteopathic Association. That, that's the AMAs or American Medical Association's yeah. equivalent for osteopathic physicians. So, uh, yeah, we can get into that later. Um, that's just what I wanted to say. Hi, Lenny. I'd love to get to right you. into it. <laughs> you guys go, 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 go. We got you can even right. hijack my growth segment if you want tonight. I there don't mind. <laughs> I do. He's not prepared. Dr. Black. Yeah, that's why no, I, I I would really like if we're going to kick back for a few hours, it's so different than what I'm used to on a set, uh, you know, agenda or something. So we can exchange to whatever subjects in this whole field you want. So let's say we whether whether it's agricultural, healthcare, medical, uh, legislative, historical, uh, uh, cannabis, I- other other botanical medicines. Um, I'd love to hear more about your practice in like in Florida. Like I, I'd like to see just from a regulatory standpoint, um, how does it work in Florida? 
Well, um, my practice is not what you may envision as a cannabinoid medicine specialist, which is actually yeah. what it says on the website. Yeah. Not a doctor of cannabinoid medicine. Uh, they're actually for like board certification and thing. There really is nothing that of There's American nothing. standards that is, we, which means there are very few standards. And that, that's a whole different subject of how to improve this over time. But for the time being, the thing you should know about me is I'm actually a board certified anesthesiologist. All right. We, yeah. we used to say we pass gas for a living, but um, where it connects to cannabis and more importantly, as a general field, botanical medicines are that I've always been an agriculture buff. It's easy to do in Miami year round. It's one of the reasons I've lived here most of my life. And uh, I, I'm as much or more of a plantsman, I think, historically than I am a, a healthcare provider. Uh, but the two married in my career and I'm not a kid anymore. So I know what I know about plant-based medicines, some from when I was a kid um, and others from seeing from what I may have remembered from all years ago, uh, how the plant that you're so interested in and enjoying now is very different from that plant or a historical reference. So, so we even can talk about evolution in today if you want. And uh, hopefully that opens up a couple hours for the stuff I'd like you to throw at me. And hey, the better, higher level more thought-provoking uh i'm gonna enjoy this i just push buttons here the guys the guys will enjoy this believe me <laughs> I, I only have one question to ask him and i'm gonna say that for later so just because it, it okay. relates to what i'm going through well now, i so. i have a question gonna forget i i got a question <laughs> that i'd like to ask you uh doc block um yeah. let's start this right off at the beginning to date how many cannabinoids are there I, I probably couldn't tell you because it's so I have a list. But <laughs> put it this way. I, I kind of stopped trying to keep up with it after it hits three figures. Okay. Mm, so okay. Yeah. in terms of ones that I find practical that we're starting to know some stuff about, probably no more than half a dozen, uh, really the two big ones, understanding yeah, that previously yeah, yeah. the only things we really were focused on was THC is now THC and CBD. To go beyond there there's so little really to talk uh, succinctly and with real evidence-based data about at this moment in time. Well, as of July 9th, yeah, what's tw- your grand count now? As of July 9th, 2019th in this list, anyways, we're at uh, 147. Well, I, w- I would have said 120. I would have said 120 if I was going to guess if this was trivia. I was going to guess around 140. There's, there's, you know, give you a good guess for for terpenoids and flavonoids. I mean, terpenes. It, it doesn't, it doesn't break it down like that. It, it's just a list, <laughs> one through. I, I think, I think when you put terps and flavonoids and stuff, I think it's like three hundred or something like that. You know, that becomes the crux of the whole problem with FDA approval because it's not just testing one chemical alone; it's testing them in combinations with the other. And when you have things that are so well orchestrated as a full ensemble that may cover at least half a dozen, if we're just going to say principal things between terpenes and which are bioactive, by the way. Very much so. Absolutely. And the cannabinoids, experimenting with it becomes exponentially more challenging when you're trying to research uh, those variables that have to be tested to match what the FDA would require uh, becomes quite daunting and and expensive. Mm. Well, and I also don't think it's accurate because the FDA and this, I get it. I'm a pharmacist as well, but everyone's looking for that pure molecule, pure entity. 
the historical evidence and even anecdotal, it, it is that entourage effect. And I was going to ask him that, Lenny. Well, no, but like I, I assume he believes in it. Yeah. Um, but it, it gets interesting. I look at Epidoliex and things like that and synthetic CBD versus an actual hemp-based CBD with all the terps and bioflavonoids and things like that. It, it, it's not apples to apples. It's a bit of apples to oranges. And I'm curious uh, your comments. Hey, oh, well, Darcy, actually, I think was just about that. Was that the kind of question you were going at about what do I think about entourage or things like that? Yeah, I, I was wondering what, what what's your thoughts on entourage effect um, compared to um, is, isolating the, uh, the compounds themselves alone from the entourage effect? Okay. Um, I'm actually glad you brought that up because it's it's a buzzword entourage. And so uh, considering you have a savvy listening audience and certainly everybody on this call now that I see in front of me uh, will perhaps appreciate this. I don't necessarily ascribe to the word entourage. I know its origin. I've even discussed yeah. it personally with Professor Raphael Meshulam. And uh, I actually wrote something in a textbook that was published late last year on the treatment of chronic pain. And... Um, it actually describes at least the way I understand cannabinoids and terpenes working together synergistically, which is really the phenomenon, as not so much where THC is in historical sense is always the leading molecule. So an entourage is, uh, I know the word, where THC is expressed itself as the leader and everything else follows. Uh, THC may be indeed a, a soloist in the modern plants featured molecule, THC, but um, traditional plants that had probably different and I believe better balances with CBD in particular at one-to-ones, and you can go and find Landry's fields and other remote places of the world, which can evidence that, uh, that probably represents more of a balance rather than THC just leading. So there's another EN, not not entourage word I prefer, it's ensemble. And people who understand when you have certain terpenes versus perhaps the same components, THC, CBD, and you add very different terpenes to it, it's a very different tune. Meaning an ensemble requires a balanced orchestration. Too much expression of one instrument is going to drag it one way. Too little may be deficient. So um, it's more of a, a conceptual way I look at the plant's balance. And yet I appreciate what's trying to be expressed there that there's this really a synergy through that ensemble. And uh, it's not just the synergy of, of chemicals existing within cannabinoids and or terpenes as individual groups, but of course, linking those two together. I believe there's an ensemble effect in, assess, in essence in the one-to-ones because you have a THC that only once it's balanced with CBD will likely in many people, particularly nov- novice users, not get some of the side effects, the unpleasant ones from THC that a novice user may encounter, the paranoia and things offset with CBD's anxiolytic or anxiety relieving properties. When you find them in a better balance, even just with the cannabinoids, to me, that's kind of cool, but it's not one chemical and it's harder to research. Couple that with terpenes, and now you've got a whole potpourri of effects, probably explaining a lot of them that people classically think of sativa versus indica, you know, something that's stimulating and up. And, and you know which terpenes those might be. So um, whether linalool or, or other things, even citrus type things that may be more uplifting, I'm actually a little critical of myrcene 
And I've got the nation's largest mango tree in the United States. Champion tree is behind me. And so mangoes, myrcene, and all of that yeah. folklore, which I, I don't necessarily ascribe to, uh, myrcene to me is very different and it's overexpressed, guys. And, and I have a concern with that. Um, and I, I know how it came to be that way in the modern varietals. And those of you who maybe wanted doing more of the agriculture talk, we can go back to 1970s plant versus 2021s. But the myrcene component, the way I understand it and see it, and you can see it in stoners and people who just are on that couch lock phenomenon, that's the culprit. And you may see other terpenes and entourage effects or ensembles that are calming or sedating or relaxing. Myrcene's component, when unbalanced, is hypnotic. And that's an anesthesiologist. I'm supposed to understand the difference with those subtleties. It's not so subtle if hypnotic requires somebody to get that couch lock. I mean, it may be therapeutic for some, but I'm concerned with how much is out there because it's not particularly consistent with productivity. Yeah. If you're using cannabis medicinally, I agree. You have to have your quality of life. You have to be productive. You have to function. And, and, it, and even if you're not science-based, if you think about it, anyone's consumed really old weed, you tend to have that hypnotic effect because usually the degradative component is an elevated mercy. So it, even anyone who's really used really old cannabis, even if it's a sativa, I find after a while you get a little bit more coach lock. Um, I, I see you guys represent uh, a strata for perhaps as, as young as Lenny, um, but... Would would you guys remember the history of 1970s cannabis and how it changed? You guys talk about that on Sunday. I your lived shows. it. I lived it as well. Can talk with you. That's when I started so smoking back in the seventies. Okay, I lived through it. Yeah. Yeah, well, you lived through it. Um, one of the points in the textbook chapter out and other things that I've I've sort of wanted to know more about uh, comes from a guy who I think is probably the world's foremost extensive traveler who pieced together a lot of those other older cultivars and uh, Robert Connell Clark's book um, basically talking about cannabis and how we co-evolve with the plant um, you know talks about how certain plants of ancient plants probably had those balances and how they've diverged you know over the years but the last 50 years in particular was kind of fascinating from Afghani Kush and skunk number one um, and and those two plants, if, if uh, Marcel, what do you know about those names then? If you're if you're the expert there, guy, if I mention those two in particular, what do those mean to you? That's that's actually they, they were the strains that started the revolution of what I would say moving indoor growing to to the pollen chuckers we have now, <laughs> because they took some really good land raised strains. And they started combining them, and they built strains. They literally, or built cultivars, would be the better word to put it. Um, but growing up in that era, I was a big fan of the, the Landry strains that we used to get, and I still am. If I could get my hands on them, I would be right in my glory, because that's what I would grow, is those strains the way they were meant to be. The Colombian gold, the Acapulco gold, the Panama red. Um they were the genetic stock that started all of this. Well, um, plus the, the Afghani and the names, the names like Maui, Wowie, and the thing. But the, the actual yeah. the Afghan Kush 
and the number and the skunk number ones in particular, the land race fields those came from are in the Kandahar region of Afghanistan. Okay, now pretty dangerous place now, and it's it's obviously had war a lot. But in 1970, there was a Harvard ethnobotanist named Richard Evan Schultes. He's sort of like the father of that whole field, who went and he discovered that Afghani Kush. And the interesting thing about it, and that's it's it's because of where it's from that the name Kush is there. That plant was very high in THC, a big expression of myrcene as dominant genes, and had had one other feature that made it the darling of hybridizers. You're right, Lenny, moving them indoors. Instead of a typical cannabis plant of 20 feet high, it's squatty, four, five, six feet max. Oh, the, the indica. Yeah. And you know what you can do with that plant? You can hide it from a helicopter. So exactly. <laughs> In 1970, that's the only darling plant that's being bred because of that reason. And I say only, I'm, I, it had all of the features, but there's really another phenomenon going on at that same time. And I'm referencing 1970 purposefully because that's the year of the Controlled Substances Act, isn't it, Lenny? All right. That changed. I would probably know more than prohibition. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. yep. And, and that 1970 year then was really advancing in many ways to acknowledging some grading scale of, of uh, medicines for their use, abuse, danger, safety, all those profiles. And it was largely based on a one molecule basis. Okay. And that's big pharma model. You would know that as yeah. a pharmacist. Yeah. And um, cannabis, as I've just finished saying, ain't one molecule. It makes it a challenge. So that one molecule, one schedule, Schedule one being prohibited and two, three, four, five were just successively less and less controlled substances, but that's not descheduled. Those are schedules. Uh, that's where all those pharmaceuticals fit. And those changes from schedule to schedule uh, don't happen very quickly. Um, and we, we have in the United States very fine physicians and researchers, FDA, uh, but the FDA and the DEA have different foci that connect through that Controlled Substances Act. Um, so anyway, in 1970, because it was prohibited at that point, if it's going to become an indoor hobby now, you know, uh, Marcel, not not the uh, outdoor way it was meant to grow by nature, uh, that whole industry's development and uh, even the cost basis for electricity is fascinating to have looked at. Uh, set the tone for hybridizing for 30 plus years, 40 years, that concentrated plants, myrcene and THC by selectively breeding out year after year, the stronger stuff. <laughs> and many of the old stuff then, genetics are lost. Some of them maybe forever. So uh, where, where do you find your genetics now, Marcel, that resemble anything that you're used to? Two friends. Because okay. every once in a while I'll come across a friend that's got some... Um, because I, I've, I did have my hands on some land race Colombian gold a few years ago, and I had to move some mothers around. And the move, mothers I moved around, everybody killed the mothers. Mm -hmm. So I lost the strain. Other than the few seeds that I did get by doing a cross with purple Kush. And I don't know, Darcy. Do you still have any of those seeds? I, I do actually. Yeah, I do. Um, no. As far as land race goes in my collection, um, Durban poison, I got Durban poison seeds there in my collection that I got when I first started to grow back in 1999. Um, 
I bought them from the Sensei Seed Bank. And then the next year we bought some from the Dutch Passion Seed Bank. And it was kind of ironic because back then we didn't really know much about phenotyping and different phenos. And I noticed there was, I was like, oh, they ripped me off because they sold me two different fucking, two different uh, plants. And what it was, was it was the same plant. It was just a different pheno of, of that dirt and poison. And after 20 years down the road, I got to, to meet the guys um, in Lyft, at the, the original breeders, and told me the story of what happened. And it makes sense, right? Two friends started a seed bank and had an argument and branched off. And he took his seeds. I took my seeds. And now we sold them, right? So it's a, they, it's a, it was a interesting story but it, it just goes to show that how much uh how much over time stuff gets spread out of out of these old land race genetics but that should actually be brought back and used more more for the medicinal purposes than most of these newer hybrids are i like to look at land race plants really from two platforms one is the chemical balance that some of the older ones really have and and it's been looked at and found but Perhaps different land races than you would be thinking of because there's new world and old world. Oh, yes, yes. In the new world. And cannabis did not come out of the new world. Cannabis no, it came, came out of the old world. And so if you follow a timeline from about 10,000 years ago with some of the earliest archaeological evidence of where it's coming from, it's the eastern slopes of the Himalayas, way yeah. out there, Asia. Yep. So within about 5,000 years from then, you get the first documentation of human use, ancient Chinese texts, things like that. But in Asia, then, it's getting better and better established, and it works its way through the Indian subcontinent, even out through Europe, and not only through there, but it, it works its way through areas that it develops land race fields that included the route to get there, the Middle East. And you can still find in the Becca Valley in Lebanon land race fields, which are one-to-one. Nowhere near, you know, 20% one-to-one. No, I'm talking about 3%, 2%, but they're one-to-one. And it's a balance. And, and I, I, if there's anything you'll hear from me, hopefully, tonight as we talk, it's that word balance. Because I can be critical of the modern plant as not having the balance that I think nature had intended and humans had shown evidence of using for thousands of years before it made it to the new world. Didn't make it to the new world until the discovery of the Americas, okay? And and I'm not just talking the fact of, of cannabis or even the African trade route bringing over things that the African subcontinent had developed for perhaps thousands of years before the slave trade established it in the uh, Caribbean here, okay? I'm talking about things even as common as where it went through Europe, it developed more along not the mind-body cannabis, but hemp cannabis. And Columbus's sails and riggings, they're all made out of hemp. So finally, it gets to the new world, but not 10,000 years ago, barely 500. And that's a huge difference. So when I look at at real Andres fields that represent two things, by the way, a Andres field represents where it's grown. And so that's one of the real challenges, Marcel, about having Landrace, even seeds, Darcy, now to try to think that they'll do what they did where they were grown for that reason, because it represents not only where it came from, but it represents the needs of the people who were actually cultivating it, sometimes for hundreds of years in the same place, maybe thousands for the Becca Valley. So um, I find all that fascinating. That's where Robert Connell Clark's book is magnificent. 
And it gave me an understanding of really cannabis and evolution, which I'm frankly, if, if, if I, I hybridize plants, not your plants, okay. I hybridize tropical ornamentals, look up uh, things of block botanical gardens if you want. And in particular, anthuriums now is pretty leaves, but I'm very familiar with hybridizing many plants. And if I had to, I would be looking to do exactly what Marcel's doing uh, to sort of reverse engineer, but it's still through hybridizing and find ways either through that or even, I'll tell you what, GMO gets a dirty name, genetic modification engineering through CRISPR and actually making a plant resemble something that you might take from another plant. But I'd like to see more of an heirloom something come out of it. I mean, have you guys ever tasted like an heirloom strawberry or tomato? Or I, 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 grow, uh, I grow all my own vegetables and I grow, uh, I try to grow as much uh, heirloom vegetables as possible, especially tomatoes. Yeah. Uh, boy, would I love to work hybridizing into creating a real heirloom plant like, like Darcy's talking about and Marcel now. Um, you know, it's almost here. Florida is not... Um, you know, moving along as fast necessarily as other states, nor does it have to. I think there's a actual good purposeful step through medical before it gets to where you guys are now enjoying what you're doing because of Canada's laws. And I'm a law-abiding well, citizen. Uh, to, to be fair, yeah, it's great. I actually think Canada did it backwards. Um, yep. it, it's yeah, great from, yeah. a crimin- from a criminal standpoint. And some of the harm issues to folks, I, I, I appreciate it, but I'm not necessarily personally a fan of, I actually had a counsel a patient today um, to go get her to ironically 10 to 10 oils, what I recommended for her, um, coming off methadone. And I had to send her to the Nova Scotia liquor store to get that medicine. <laughs> Sorry to laugh. That's funny. It should not be like, so Canada is not perfect by any means. I know people. Um, but, but you have a national disposition on the subject, whether it's medical or... It, at least it's accessible. That, that is a positive. My point is that you have a national consensus, and that's what's failed to exist here, which yeah. is really what holds back not simply you know access to it as a medicine for a patient, but researching mm-hmm. it and educating on it, because they're all tied together towards a federal disposition. Uh, regardless of what individual states are doing, um, the real crooks of the matter is prohibition, which is a federal standard. And uh, when Canada then went, and even before they had recreational approved, just medical, Health Canada published some really helpful stuff for the docs who are practicing in Canada about what it's all about. There's very little here in the States that even equals what Health Canada publishes as an educational tool from which physicians can learn from. No, the Health Canada document is actually fairly in-depth and pretty decent, to be fair. That's my point. I agree. Well, um, I wish I had a little bit more strength as far as dosing, but there's some good review articles. Dr. I think McCullough, I can't remember if it's McCullough, McClellan, and Rosso have a nice 2018 European Journal of Pain. Excellent baseline review. Dosing cannabis is easy. I, 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 that's the part that makes me kind of laugh. Yeah, there's there's not much difficulty to to uh, dosing cannabis. No, but it, it's just basically go low, go slow. It's it's more counseling than. Yeah. Depends on the endpoint of what you're looking for, you know, to a mm-hmm. outcome. Mm-hmm. 
problem is most docs and and even the patients there don't get the follow-up to be able to really do what are called longitudinal studies. In other words, follow up, not with somebody the next day and say, how you feeling? Fine. So be it. And see you in six months. Um, I'm talking about real longitudinal drawn out over years. Um, oh, it's not there. None of that information will no. from those. And there's a paucity of those out there. That's, that's happening in our gray market and there's no doctors involved because that's people like me dealing with patients and counseling and basically like Lenny says a lot of it is a lot of counseling um how to use it when to use it and what to do when you don't have it anymore well when you're looking at people for outcome and most of the evidence-based data that's out there now are not really the things that you would expect to have the high credibility because a lot of it is Call 1-888-FARMERS to switch and you could save an average of $470 on your auto insurance. That's a lot of money in just a few minutes. With savings like that, you could be lounging on an impractical amount of ornate and overpriced throw pillows you bought for your couch. But you won't because you're better with money than that. That's why you're calling us in the first place. Call 1-888-FARMERS to get a quote today. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Based on average nationwide annual savings survey data, July to December 2020. Underwritten by Farmers, Trucker, Fire Insurance, Exchanges, or Affiliate. Products not available in every state. Stick it to cheat day. Yeah. With flavor that fuels. Two new flavors from Rain Total Body Fuel. He shoots. He scores. Cherry Limeade. Wild Cherry with a burst of lime. And White Gummy Bear. Tangy Tart Pineapple Goodness. 300 milligrams of natural caffeine, electrolytes, BCAAs, and CoQ10. Sweet without the cheat. Take that, sugar. Try new Rain Cherry Limeade and White Gummy Bear. A total body fuel times two. Um, you know, polling patients, you know, how did you do? Um, Most of it is surveying cannabis. Yeah. And, and so when you have... Um, really people getting polled and saying, how are you? Think about it uh, as I would be, let's say, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a doc, okay? So a pain medicine doc sees a patient, and get they get cannabis and they try some and then they're asked about it. If you understand how many, especially CB1 receptors there are in the brain, the hippocampus, the amygdala, those areas of the brain, particularly that are responsible for memory, um, when somebody's under the immediate effects, like the first hour or two, if you're going to ask them how they're doing, you're saying, great, this works wonderfully. In that setting, while there's still got a buzz, the confounder is that you've got the euphoria. Not that there's anything wrong with euphoria, but it greatly confounds placebo. And it's hard to say, oh, it was you know the euphoria that's why they responded. So crowdsourcing is challenging if you ask somebody about it within the first few hours, but let's say that you tell the patient, go home, come on back in a couple of weeks, tell me how you did. Well, now somebody comes back a couple of weeks later and they're trying to report to you about how they responded to something that you know as a researcher or a doc is a tremendously effective drug for causing memory impairment. So how reliable is their report when they come back to you knowing what you're testing for impairs memory? Crowdsourcing has real limits, and and what I'm just bringing up is is how challenging it is. Whether you're asking somebody sooner or later, both of those are real confounders, and and uh, it's hard to get around that through crowdsourcing. You guys follow me with what I'm explaining there? 
Oh, very much so. Um, a few years ago, we ran a couple small clinical trials. Um, and the first one was a double-blind placebo where we did capsules up for patients. Um, Ooh, I did one that group, one, didn't I? Yeah, one group of patients got placebos. One group of patients actually got a very low-dose cannabis medicine. Nobody knew who got what. I still don't. Um, None of us know who got what or knew who got what at the time because everybody had different information, and it was done on that, that way on purpose. The doctor that was tabulating all the information knew within three days who got the placebos and who got the medicine just from the, doing the reports. Um, then we were nice, and we gave the ones that got the placebos ended up getting the actual medicine, and they were followed for a couple weeks as well. So I know exactly what you mean. With us for doing this, it was a little bit different because we could only use legal patients in Canada because we wanted to stay relatively within the law, um, which meant that the patients already had a license. They were already using cannabis, and most of them were smoking it. So what we did is we told them they could smoke all they wanted to, but they would have to only ingest what we gave them, no suppositories, no edibles, only the capsules that they received from us. We made them track how much they smoked and how often um, for the two-week period that they were on the trial. And at the end of the two weeks, overall, it was about a 40% with one person up to a 70% less smoked cannabis. So the capsule being a low dose wasn't enough to get them high but they didn't need to smoke near as much. So that showed to, to be a considerable cost savings for them. Mm-hmm. But Th- those people- there are ways to find out. It's mm-hmm. just, you, you just got to do it in such a way that the people that are being tested don't know that they're actually being tested. When, when you can, and I'm speaking now as a clinician who's aware of the difference between tobacco smoking and cannabis smoking and cancer, um, if you can ideally get therapeutic control of what you're treating with something orally, topically, other than breathing in it in, great. The best yep. thing at that point is if you needed something for what's called breakthrough. Exactly. Breakthrough pain. Yep. Then not only is inhalation, you know, also therapeutic, mm-hmm. but it's much more immediate. And, and that's really the main difference and benefit from it. So uh, for breakthrough pain, that could be used. But I look at other routes of delivery, and, and they're very practical. And actually, they're pretty darn important in a day and age that we're in now. And I'm, now I'm alluding to COVID because, what, it were mid-February. You go back just a year and a month or so ago, and nobody was talking about everybody on ventilators from COVID. It was all about vaping deaths, remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that long ago. That's not that long ago. And, and whether or not uh, the final source of that contaminants, exactly what chemicals may have caused that, people were dying and it was ugly. So there are good things that industry can provide, assuming, and that may be, be a stretch, that that may have been a black market phenomenon from tainted oils. Um, but basically, whether oils or whole plant, um, breathing things through your lungs 
again, I'm an anesthesiologist. When you can't breathe, nothing else matters, guys. So I, I, I agree. It's probably not the smartest time with COVID to challenge your lungs. I've had both my vaccines, you know, and stuff. But when people ask me now uh, about it, I have to respond with a different proviso. You got a real pandemic out there, and it's something to be aware of to try to have the healthiest immune system and lungs. That is the correct assessment. That you can. So uh, I have no doubt that cannabinoids and cannabis impact a immune system response to inflammatory processes. And uh, that talk about COVID that I told you that I gave for A4M and then for the American Osteopathic Association, um, it was not as kind about all parts of cannabis. It, uh, what I did, and I'm going to share it with you because Please. sometimes I got to tell you just what, what I found. Can I yeah, just, um, can I just say one thing, that, uh, uh, yeah. doc for a sec? Sure. When I went and, uh, had a chat with my doctor who I've been going to for 30 some odd years. Okay. Uh, about signing up for cannabis and being all legal and stuff like that. He flat out said, I don't want you smoking it. If you smoke it, you're going to get cancer. If you want to use it other ways, you go right ahead. And he signed my paper. He was adamant that I did not inhale it. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, my comment on it. Um, Actually, right now, there's nothing that supports that cannabis akin to tobacco is a source of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. It does not mean it's healthy for your lungs. The TARS and COPD, COPD, bronchitis, you know, people who smoke, you can hear it. And that's without COVID. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing out that it impacts lungs. Lungs are there to keep you alive. Without them, you're not here. And it's kind of an ugly way to die, you know, if you can't breathe. Um, so, so just in balance there, everything's risk-benefit. And if, if the impacts of some chemicals in cannabis can be looked at for how they impact viruses, and I'm kind of saying it this way because you know, a lot of things can get killed in a Petri dish, a bacteria, yeah. a virus, things like that. And you see some research there, but that's not clinical experience with humans or even animals. That's just a, in a, a Petri dish. But you do have a difference between THC and CBD from everything I've been able to look at concerning how it impacts viruses. And whether it's viruses like uh, herpes, uh, hepatitis C, influenza, most of the things that I've looked at about THC, a la carte THC, to separate it out from everything else, was not favorable for outcome and immune system integrity, things that, that would presumably be helpful. CBD could be very different, though, from things that it does, although all the mechanisms and it has not been as extensively looked at, especially for viruses like THC has. But CBD is different in a particular um basis in that it's really kind of good for two things. Uh, number one, for anxiety, okay? It, it in of itself is a pretty impressive anxiolytic when you compare with what other pharmaceuticals are out there that have some pretty strange side effects, sedation um, and things like that. So benzodiazepines, Valium, um, Ativan, uh, other meds that are out there for anxiety a lot of them have side effects that CBD doesn't at even somewhat higher doses. At higher doses, it does things, though, that impact the way the liver can metabolize other medicines. So if you're taking a lot of other things, it may not be the smartest thing to reach for first. 
But the other thing, in addition to anxiety, that it does seem to help is inflammation. It's not as much of something that relieves inflammation as as steroids do, for instance, or even um, certain NSAIDs or non-steroidal things. But um, it, it does impact anxiety and inflammation. And rather than thinking about only what people use cannabis for, if they're healthy now, I'm thinking about all the people who contract COVID that have some drawn out, what they call sequelae or, or consequences from it. So it's not gone in a matter of a week or two, or those lucky people who may have had it and never even knew they had it. You know, there's plenty of people out there that that way will test positive that they've had it in their antibodies that are there now. So when you look at people though, who aren't so lucky, those who have residual side effects from it, um, I'm not so much sure that brain fog necessarily comes from inflammatory disorders, even in the brain, but the myalgias, the aches and pains, those kind of things, when you couple that along with what that person is most understandably going through, anxiety, hell, I'm not the same, man, it's been six months, when am I going to get better again? Um, maybe there is a practical way that it's a timely risk-benefit time to really look at CBD more closely for those people in particular. And uh, I'll just sort of wrap this part up to see if you guys want to get into this part of the conversation about ethics, right thing to do. Um, in that talk on COVID, you know, that I told you I gave and that uh, people can hear if they go to either my website or uh, it's posted on a few other sites, including the answer page, which is a Harvard educational forum. Uh, it starts off with the phrase, first do no harm. It's actually in Latin, it's called primum non nocere. And people attribute that to Hippocrates appropriately, but they say, oh, doc, you know, you should be able to follow that dictum because it's part of your Hippocratic oath. Um, I, I served a few years back as the president of the University of Miami School of Medicine's Alumni Association. So uh, I had to learn what oaths mean because I had to give it to 200 new docs at commencement for a few years. And uh, it winds out that it's nowhere in the Hippocratic Oath about first do no harm. Do you guys know that? No, that's really. Yeah, I want you to know that as a fact. It that's, is attributed to Hippocrates, though. And, and this is my message. But it's from a different set of Hippocrates' writings. And the title of those writings was of the epidemics, exactly what we're in now, which, which is sort of implying that, hey, you know, in extreme situations, epidemics and whatever, remember, you may try certain things that are out of vogue, but do no harm. Okay. Remember, don't hurt people. Um, from a bioethical basis, then guys, to me, that means physicians, the people you're asking your question to, Al, um, shouldn't overestimate their capacity to heal nor cause harm. And that's where the, the lesson was in saying first, do no harm. And, and if that resonates with you about people experimenting with cannabis, especially during COVID, as a special time to consider that, it's meant to. So different level of conversation. You guys got something we can extend from there? Oh, God, you're all quiet. No, no, no they're, they're uh, observing. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> what do you mean by experiment? Because here, here, here's my concept. As a pharmacist, when I recommend cannabis, I actually don't recommend inhalation, except for one clinical situation. Um, and that's actually how I use cannabis. I'm not a chronic smoker of it. Um, cause I'm actually paranoid about COPD. I worked, uh, eight years in the hospital, general medicine, ICU, palliative care. I've seen how people pass away through COPD. I'm not going to pass away that way. 
But here's the one thing I'll actually recommend inhalation of cannabis for. Um, insomnia, waking up at two or three in the morning and you have to go to work at six to get up. There is no pharmaceutical. I can't take it orally because I will be sedated. That's the only time I'd ever actually recommend cannabis clinically through inhalation just for that person that can't sleep at night. That's just for me as patient and of one myself. It is and fantastic. What, and what um, if that patient is like me, that it doesn't matter what it is that you smoke it, it keeps them awake? Um, that's just my experience. If you can find the yeah. right particular strain, because I don't believe in the strain does this, the strain does this. I have a couple strains I use that will let me go back to sleep very quickly, a quick inhalation, um, so forth. But when you were saying – like I'm a big fan of CBD and I don't, my very first question is, do you probably get this all the time? Should I be, I want, I heard about CBD. Should I take it? My very first question to a patient is why do you want to take it? Um, that's my very, well, I just heard it's good for me. Well, that's not a really good reason to take something. You need an endpoint. Um, I love it for anxiety. Um, things like that. I have a lot of seniors with a little bit of arthritis, knees, things like that. My mom, my dad, so forth. Um, but were you meaning just start to take cannabis as a COVID prevent? Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name and price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Whether you're a market seller. I'll take two tomatoes and a cucumber. Poodle Pamperer. <laughs> piano tuner or plumber signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy touch-free qr code payments shop safe with paypal what do you mean is that or, or just don't use it at all that was what i was kind of confused by your that's why i was silent i was trying to figure out your 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 uh what you were going with that <laughs> i led into the description of covid and cannabis yeah. no not so much for prophylactic use yeah THC doesn't seem to be helpful. That's the warning for the program. No, uh, no, very, very good. That's a great but message. When I now shift the conversation to CBD, I'm saying, you know what? It's a uniquely, it, it's a unique time in history during a pandemic. Yeah. When you have many, many people who are stuck with residual from something we don't know how long it's going to last for. And so what you're going to throw at that person to take this, take that, take the other thing, it's the perfect time to research CBD. That's yeah. my point. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, no, I misinterpreted. That's, that's fine. Well, um, it's safety profile compared to THC otherwise is, is fairly straightforward. But when you have something in this case with COVID and the immune system where viruses do not seem to be favorably helped by taking THC, but just might their residual in this case yeah. be helped by CBD. To me, that's a just an opportunity to research it because now you have 
big numbers of subjects. And really all the FDA's research that has been presented for years and years, mostly looking for negative things with, with THC. But when you look at some very sound studies for the structure, the methodology, in particular coming out of the University of California's university system for 20, 25 years, upon the discovery of how it works in the mid-1990s when you knew how the endocannabinoid system, where it was, what it does. Some really good studies, but very few opportunities to have enough subjects to reach a critical threshold of confidence. So to do a study with a dozen, 50 patients, nah, you get 400 and up, and that's really ultimately what evolves through broader research opportunities. You think you got 400 people out there in the U.S. and Canada who have residual from COVID that they would love to find a safe way to treat? Many more than that. Uh, and, and so it's a, it's a golden opportunity to do it. And um, yet it, it, it's still grouped in the way it is and made hard. So where I think industry could be shooting itself in the foot a little bit by having it come across, like you mentioned a moment ago, about good for whatever ails you, like snake oil stuff, is a very slippery slope very much. So I don't tend to look at it necessarily from how good it is or what it'll do that's good for you, other than those two things, anti-inflammatory and anxiolytic. Yep. I tend to look at it for how relatively safe it is to so many other medicines, other things that help anxiety, other things that help inflammation in contrast to the side effects of THC. Um, yeah, you have patients sometimes who, as I just mentioned, uh, somebody who's taking a blood thinner or something like that, especially in higher doses of CBD. And it impacts a part of the liver, guys, CBD does, that has a certain enzyme that works in a thing called cytochrome P450. Look it up sometime. Knock yourself out academically. But what that does is it may change how fast your body is able to metabolize those other important medicines that require a certain level in your blood, like blood thinners, things for seizures uh, also not CBD itself in this case, but other medicines that your body needs a certain critical level of to maintain for its effect, CBD can change that. So it even still could be taken, but you'd probably want to have your doc follow you for blood levels of those other particular things, especially blood thinners. I, ironically, from an INR morphine, just anecdotally in my pharmacy, we do uh, point-of-care INR testing. Um, I've seen... INRs escalate extreme on CBD because of the P450 interaction, but I've actually seen minimal with THC, ironically. Yeah, um, I'm really talking specifically about people who take extra blood thinners, not um, other things. I don't think you're, I haven't really read about people who have spontaneous bleeding issues just from CBD alone. But, and again, there's many drugs other than blood thinners that the body metabolizes through that enzyme system. Oh yeah. No, so it means if you're going to be on it, especially on higher doses and you take lots of other meds, make sure your doc knows that you're taking this in addition to those other things for its impact, a potential impact. Um, it's all fascinating stuff and it's good sound medicine. Um, what do you guys, and this is just sort of my way of finding out what you might know or think about not the plant, but the way the body really works. Because there, there's sort of a general misconception out there, even among my medical colleagues, who think that cannabis is imitating the body system 
or the body system is imitating cannabis. There, there's a very different perspective. And I think that as much as people think they know about cannabis, it really helps to, if you're a healer and you really want to get deep into it, to first and foremost understand the body's endogenous system, the, the receptors here that cannabis is interplaying with, but is not the natural system. Not at all. It's nowhere no, near it's it's not, it's not an anamine. It's not 2-AG. Phytocannabinoid is totally different than an endocannabinoid. Exactly. And so the, the, if you understand the purpose of why the body has an endocannabinoid system to begin with, it gives you a much better context from which to interpret very limited what's called evidence-based data. Because most docs, if they just look at the evidence-based data and you don't know about how the endogenous system works, they'll say, eh, I don't really get it. And they'll just say, well, what's the government say? It's legal, moral, fattening, whatever. It's no good. So we won't have to learn about it. And, and, and those docs that do know about this, who have put themselves to task are to be commended. This is actually not a simple subject. Um, but I, I think it helps if docs and, and then, of course, to their patients or you guys just not as patients of mine, you're not. Um, but I'm not naive. And there's a not so fine line between medical and recreational because you're doing what you're doing for some therapeutic reason. OK, even if just to chill, I get it. So I don't try to necessarily categorize the way I interact with patients or human beings based on medical use, recreational use. You're using it for a therapeutic reason. And I don't judge you. All right. So what do you really know about the body's own system and what it's supposed to do? Anybody chime right in, because I'd love to get the feedback to see where you come from. You probably have different ideas among yourselves. But do you talk about this much or is it always only about the plant? Um, our daily job, we sell cannabis, so we don't get into it too much. As far as the understanding of CB1, CB2 distribution of receptors, the enzymes, the, the MAGLs, the FAHHs, I, I, I've done my research. I know a basic understanding of it, turn on, turn off, um, obviously a balance. Uh, I've read a lot of Russo's articles, uh, high endocannabinoid tone, low endocannabinoid basic tone, things like that. Um, as, uh, I read it to read it, but I'll, I'll honestly, I don't retain it. I am more of, again, your typical pharmacist behind the counter. Patient comes in. I have this complaint. My, I'm more about alternative medicines. I'm actually not, cannabis is not usually my one, two, three, or four of anything or CBD. Big fan of omega-3 fish oils, curcumins, um, L-theanine. We're talking about anxiety, for example. Huge fan of L-theanine. I'm a uh, I enjoy magnesium, glycinates, things like that. So uh, my, my whole practice in the pharmacy has always been what's something a little bit more balanced. Uh, and probably it is from my A4M educations. It was a statement someone told me years ago. People don't have high cholesterol because they're deficient in atorvastatin. People don't have the depression because they're deficient in Paxil. I, I just always believe there's something out of balance. Uh, and, and I think that is really what sometimes, be it uh, hormones, neurotransmitters, endocannabinoid systems, it's a balance. And I don't know enough where we all are in medicine and, and tracking it, but that's where I'd like to see someday is to get down to a little bit more of those cellular levels and those things is I think there's a whole field we're missing. And that's just kind of my thoughts, but 
I don't know if that answered the question or I just went around it, but I, I basic no, understanding you there is answered, a endocannabinoid. You answered it from the um, the chemical body that THCs mimic. Yeah, okay? yeah, so, no, but that that but that's how I work. I'm a pharmacist. <laughs> well, but, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try to change it to have a little more clinical impact. Okay, instead sure. of direct pharmacy, because I I understand what's being expressed in endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome as a yeah as a concept um, and, yeah. and I'm not so sure I agree with it as a pathology or, or a, you know, disease. I think that the balance, the word you just used three or four times in the last minute, yeah. uh, we're bringing back the conversation to where it really is. And that's yeah. what the whole system's meant to do. So forget the fancy names of the chemicals or anything like no, that. No, no, exactly. I agree. Efficiency. The, the, I, I think of five words and, and it's not my five words. They're the words that actually, um, are attributable, and not to Ethan, but to Russo. And, and uh-huh. we've known each other. We met last uh, uh-huh. a year and a half ago, Medical University of South Carolina, where we talk about some of the things, the use of the word entourage, ensemble, things like yeah. that. And we've had other profound talks. But the the researcher, uh, the world's most frequently cited researcher is from Italy. His name's Vincenzo DiMarzo. And yes, way back, 1998, uh, DiMarzo who had a very good concept for what overall cannabinoids are doing naturally for you, not pot, but just think about yeah. cannabinoids in general. They're there to do five basic things. And uh, one of them, by the way, Marcel, you should listen to because it's one of the things you have trouble with. Uh, they're there basically for eating, sleeping, relaxing, forgetting, and protecting. And just think about those yep. five things a minute. All that right? makes sense. Makes That's sense. right. And DeMarso's the one who put those words out there in 1998. And I tell you what, I've known about cannabis from high school days when my high school chemistry teacher in, I hate to tell you this, but the early 1970s was a hippie who wrote the chemical structure of THC on the blackboard. I had no idea what he was doing. It was way over my head. But uh, I spent the next four years at Emory University and I have a chemistry major a degree with psychology. So now I saw chemical structures differently, but then going into my medical school years and deciding to be an anesthesiologist, nobody still knew how it worked. Okay. So the receptors themselves and then how they work weren't discovered until mid 1990s. I'm already in practice. And so what's happening to me in those years is I'm saying, wait a minute, it's really more about the whole patient. It's about the balance you just talked about. I know I get sick patients if they don't eat right, if they don't sleep right, if they can't forget, think about that, if they can't relax, and if they can't sleep, Marcel, those are the things we just talked about. And obviously, if they can't protect their own body, meaning their immune system's weak, they're not going to be alive that well either. So all of those things that this guy DeMarzo delineated, just five things clinically, was a better way for me to look at the importance of how you balance all of those to be whole, to be exactly what you are today. And if you think about it from conception all the way through death, even in utero, a fetus developing has to rely on the nutrition, okay? And it's an independent being. It's got endocannabinoids forming and working before it's, before a baby's born. And you know what? When you die game over without cannabinoids or without an endocannabinoid system, without an immune system, you know, you'd be gone momentarily. I can't tell you exactly how long because nobody's ever been able to test something like that. Okay, It's all theoretical stuff. But they're that integral to everything we do. 
So when you think about those five things, eating, and then we'll go one-on-one, everybody recognizes cannabis from eating munchies. It's a food appetite thing. (laughs) There's conclusive clinical evidence, conclusive evidence, that it helps for wasting syndromes by stimulating appetite. It's why Marinol, a synthetic form of it, is a legal schedule drug, but not prohibited. It works for appetite. It's one of the actual official indications in Canada. Mm -hmm. So what I'm bringing up is not so much the plant, but I'm telling you things that the plant does that you're familiar with so you'll understand how it impacts your body's own normal system. So if you go from eating, what was the next thing I said? Sleeping. What do babies do a lot? Eat and sleep. That's all growth. And if you can't eat and sleep, you're not going to grow up. So it's absolutely essential to the beginning of life. Then you try to coast and you may not sleep as well or eat as well and you suffer the consequences of it. But your body's own endocannabinoid system is there from the time you're conceived to help you with those things. So eating and sleeping are critical. Marcel, with respect to sleeping, what you do and, and take or don't try? Well, no, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem sleeping. My uh, The only time I have a problem like sleeping... No, if I get up two or three, I'll go right back to bed. I no, won't smoke l- the Lenny, Lenny will wake up. Lenny will smoke the joint. If I smoke the joint at two or three when I get up, I'd be awake for another two or three hours. You, so, you know, yeah. another chemical we didn't talk about that I found to be very helpful and accepted uh, pharmacologically for sleep. Melatonin? Uh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, yeah. in terms of how to take it, there are different ways I use to it. take it. But um, I, I know there's a company that makes some really fine, uh, not sublingual, but... Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> Okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Small business owners, is your internet making office tasks painfully slow? Are your file upload speeds? Sluggish? Are your video calls cha a a You need more speed. AT&T Business Fiber gives you up to 20 times faster upload speeds at half the price of cable. Faster upload speeds mean smoother, less glitchy video conferencing and faster file transfers. Visit att.com slash businessfast or call 844-621-FAST to get our best price on our best service. Imagine it, up to 20 times faster upload speeds at half the price of cable. AT&T experts can help you upgrade to AT&T Business Fiber. Soon, you're going to love your internet. Call 844-621-FAST now. Comparison by Telogical Systems, 12-2020. Oral, to melt in your mouth, not to swallow like ingestion. Let's make sure we know the difference there. But those things that slowly dissolve in the mouth, that the blood vessels in the mouth actually get into your system quicker than you think, those things that are CBD with melatonin. Yeah, have a real perfect good combination. Reducing and melatonin. Melatonin in bigger doses in every single night. Some people say after a while they can wake up with a little what's brain fog. And it's the melatonin. It's not residual cannabinoids or things like that. So not too much, but a little bit that way. 
but about an hour before you would think of wanting to go to sleep, which is ideally, and again, I know it gets darker where you are real early as far as how up north you are, but um, this time of year, I don't know how your sleep begins and ends, but a four-hour blocks of sleep is really what's most healthy for humans to get through phases of sleep that include the deepest sleep, which is highly therapeutic and important for your brain getting itself back together and your body resting to that extent. It's called REM sleep, R-E-M. It stands for rapid eye movement because even though you're asleep, you wouldn't know it, but your eyes are actually moving all around. Um, it's deep sleep. And even the military requires their soldiers to have at least that four-hour block. Ideally, two in a row is what most people strive for, those eight hours. And if they're done during the wee hours of the morning, again, Marcel, so you got to get back to sleep. Uh, I got kids. I got twin boys who are just 16 years old. And growth hormone, their growth hormone, is released generally three, four in the morning. That's the body's normal rhythm of when that very important hormone's released. I want to make sure they're really asleep then and not up in the middle of the night, you know, on video games and things like that for their own health and growth. And uh, they're not little kids. They're, they're growing up big for 16-year-olds. Um, and, and as one other family note, I'm going to share with you that uh, I had to ask my wife first if it would be okay if I'd mention this. Um, but I do have a cultural understanding, uh, perhaps, of, of subjects related to, to this, too, um, my wife was born in, in Jamaica. My wife's Jamaican. My kids are half Jamaican. Um, and so I just want to share with you that with the use of, of medicines, for instance, in Jamaica, uh, she tells me, well, what about um, plant practitioners? Um, that, that's what she calls them. We're talking about people literally out in the countryside who have used different preparations of cannabis like forever. And do you know what they use it for, for eating and nausea? It's if you don't have other choices for things and you're a pregnant woman and you have that horrible first trimester nausea, vomiting things, and you can't stop from throwing up. And sometimes you can lose babies as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Cannabis teas, very dilute. Nobody's going around smoking a blunt. It's dilute cannabis teas. It restores the volume because it's diluted and required to drink it. And the cannabinoids themselves are highly therapeutic there. That would be something that's used. And you know what? They have scores when babies are born called APGAR scores. It measures the growth, the vigor, and everything with newborns. Some of their kids are just off the charts for healthy, bouncing babies when they come out. So I'm not saying that everybody in every country should be having cannabis for first trimester. <laughs> no, I didn't say yeah, that. You better, you better say that one right now. You don't have access to other therapeutics and sound medical things, um, the restorative value of the way it's used by the indigenous, not indigenous people, but the people who preciously protect their plants and know their plants is part of the culture I understand uh, through my wife. So I, I, I'm trying to share with you, there's a lot that um, I've learned over the years and, and these last 20 in particular since I've been with her have been profound that way because it adds to what I know about plants that may not have that human touch. Um, so anyway, between eating and sleeping, I'm sure you can understand how cannabis, when you think about it in that context, it's all about cannabis, cannabis, cannabis. No, it's from my perspective, more about knowing how important endocannabinoids are to eating and sleeping. 
And so what cannabis does to disrupt that or complement it, um, it's a sledgehammer as compared to how fine the body's own chemicals interface with that system to keep you in this constant fine-tuned balance. That's a, it's a rather miraculous thing that we can keep ourselves like this. And you know how bad injuries and illness and disease impact your normal balances. It makes you sick, throws you way off balance. Um, what about just relaxing and things? That, that's another one of those things that the Marzo said after eating and sleeping, talk about relaxing. Not sleeping, relaxing, different. You want to comment on that as you regard it as being an essential part of health? What about you, Al? Are you relaxing right now? Uh, this is what I do. We do this every Friday, Doc, and this is this how we is relax. This is how we do it. Um, <laughs> I, I've equated it to the housewife, or, or I'll even joke, Marcel, do you have a scotch on you? Not yet. I'm waiting. <laughs> He's right, waiting. The, the, the glass of red wine. <laughs> Chris is late. I, I did mention that <laughs> it's after I do eight. occasionally smoke <laughs> cannabis, not for my sleep, for the relaxation. I like I, I enjoy it. Um but I it's it's that long issue that keeps me from doing it too often. Yeah. Hey and Marcel. Yes. I, I, I um I I uh I was for several years the Florida chapter director for the Scotch Bart Whiskey Society <laughs> at Bats and Leaf. And we oh, take nice. the bottles from special casts and make them available to members across the world. Um, it, it's, can I be? Can I be a member? <laughs> <laughs> can I be a member? Sure, go ahead and look them up. Scotch Malt yeah. Whiskey Society. Uh, and I yeah, actually have pairings meals sometimes featuring scotch instead of wine. I don't know wine; it's it's very complicated. I belong to men's wine clubs, but. They usually ask me if I'm going to do a meal to feature scotches. And we do, we do sometimes. You know, uh, wh- one of the things that I find about wine specifically is I get the same buzz as I do from weed. Yeah. Not really? so much Not so really? much now. Yeah, it gives me the drunk. same – it gives me a glow. Not so much now because I've I got, glow, di- yeah, I've got diabetes. Small, I, I can't yeah, I, drink that yeah, much. Okay. But it gives me that out, same couple glasses of wine. Yeah, and you're just I like, personally hey. get a little bit more. Well, you guys have seen me drunk on the social. Table. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I, I get. Yes, um, cannabis for me is a private thing. Um, it's not a party thing. I don't get that glow. I get that very relaxed, calm down feeling, which is what I like. Um, but that's what I use it for. Um, just, I, I use it for I, a host of things. So I mean, it's not just relaxing. It's I've got ADHD bad. I've got bad pain issues. You know, so I'm stoned all the time. I use it to stay time. alive and <laughs> to allow other people to stay alive. Yes, it, it adjusts my attitude along with the mushrooms. It adjusts my attitude so that I can live my life without getting stressful and anxiety and punching people and stuff. Stress, <laughs> stress is actually alcohol. really bad. I don't drink alcohol. Well, you know what, though? The, the interesting thing that I, I sometimes get into deep conversations with concerns prohibition because that's alcohol and yeah. cannabis. Yep, yep, yep. And, and you know what? There's lessons to be learned from tobacco and alcohol, whether you're a healthcare provider or a historian. And, um, you know, we, we talked about tobacco versus cannabis a little while ago for causing cancer versus uh, lung problems in general. But Let's face it, alcohol, as, as, as good as it may make you feel, or similar to cannabis, Al, alcohol is a pure toxin. It oh. irreversibly kills brain and liver oh, cells. Yeah. So um, to, to, to compare the two from anything other than having both been prohibited in, a, in the USA, um, 
the chemical comparison ends really right there. I know they both. Well, have- I, I, you know what? It's not that I'm comparing it. What I'm what I'm saying is wine for me, because I've got ADHD. I think, anyways, my brain works a little differently. Alcohol affects me differently. You get me into a bottle of tequila or or even gin, you don't want to be anywhere near me. Different types of alcohol affect me. I don't like the feeling of alcohol in my body. I don't mind a cold beer, a Ryan Coke now and then, or a glass of wine. But uh, over the last five years, since diabetes has come visiting, it, it just, it, I get really drunk really quick, and I'm like, and then I throw up, and that's it. My night's done. There's, it's not even worth it. With a, with a, a doobie or a treat or uh, even a, a, you know, a nice mushroom, I'm relaxed. I'm stable. I'm not throwing up, uh, and I, I don't feel any anger, you know, like you do with alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, I came very close to having an issue with alcohol many years ago, you know, and I just. I stopped. I just, I don't like the feeling of it at all. I used to bounce. I was in a bar every night. I don't like being around drunk people. Stone people, sure. You know, there's a whole different thing. And I've gone through, I grew up in Toronto. I'm 57 this year. And I grew up in Toronto in Yorkdale or Yorkville, which was a mecca for hippies and stuff like that uh, in Toronto, right on Young, down right at Young Street. Uh, I don't know if you know much about Toronto, but um, it was a different place in the 60s. And I happened to go go to school right in that area. So I have a different philosophy on the use of uh, substances, I guess, you know. I was there about 20 oh. years ago. Was it when you were growing up, as I remember it, which was being particularly charming because... There's this town, that town. Each culture is very yeah. European, but uh, with with areas that are districts almost. That was like going to Epcot. For yes, me. there's in one day. You know, cover a lot of countries. There's a lot of different areas. Uh, they say that Toronto is probably one of the most diverse, culturally diverse uh, cities in the world because of all the different kinds of people we have. We've got a little Italy. We've got a, a, a little Jamaica. We've got a, a, a little Israel. You know, we've got all these, like you said, pockets. A, li- a little Newfoundland. Yeah, every, everything. Yeah. I mean, you can get any kind of food. We have um, a, a food festival uh, up on, uh, I, th- I can't remember, it's Eglinton or Lawrence, uh, just in Scarborough, that, I mean, you can get anything you want we have uh cart festivals where all different kinds of it's just a mecca of food and weed <laughs> sorry i was there in the summer you won't get me up there this time of year but i was there in the summer you're not, you're not allowed anymore yeah oh, you can't the come in the festival. <laughs> i'll tell you what i like your side of the falls a lot better <laughs> it, a lot of people say that this the the oh, canadian side of the, the falls, falls- yeah, the falls looks a lot better. I've seen it from both sides, and I have to say, from the yeah, Canadian, Canadian side, it does look. It's better. bigger too. We have yeah. more of it. We were talking about alcohol a minute ago, but yep. Um, and and Al, as far as you're talking about um, how it affects you now and what's therapeutic with cannabis instead, when I look at prohibition, I look at it from where I am here, like behind me, Miami, in the 1920s, was. Al Capone, it was rum running from Cuba yeah. up through here, and obviously up in Appalachia, you've got you know stills and all stuff. But I love the Moonshiner Show. 
Well, moonshine, right. exactly. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna point out that today's cannabis under prohibition has changed during the years since I was a kid. We're talking 50 years since high school times. Mm. Um, from what was balanced and probably a lot weaker to be what's out there now, akin to what happened to alcohol. Because before alcohol prohibition... It was stronger and it went the other way. Yeah. Yeah. But then we're talking about not just rum running with spirits, 40%, but moonshine. And and if I'm going to say it in a way that's sort of succinct, um, in many respects, modern cannabis, and I'm not talking about therapeutic CBD, terpene profiles, understanding it. I'm talking about what's pushed the THC to such concentrates... Shatter is the alcohol moonshine equivalent yeah. of yeah. the modern plant, which yep. that's not evolution for me, guys. That's devolving. Um, <laughs> and, and you know what? And it's sort of grown with the same stills in the hills mentality in Appalachia, but it's now maybe the Rockies or, or you know, different mountains, but same concept under prohibition that concentrates it because the penalties, if you get caught with moonshine or beer, are the same. It's a volume penalty. And Who's going to risk getting caught with beer when they could get moonshine? Because, hell, you can cut it and then pass it further down for mm-hmm. like many, many fold more. Same thing with cannabis, though. The penalties are based on per weight. And so now, I mean, I'm telling you as a horticulturist, to have certain cultivars, and I'm not giving anything credit for 30%, but 25% dry weight of a single secondary metabolite THC, to, to hybridize to that end is actually quite a remarkable feat of, of advanced Mendelian genetics to come up with a plant that's the modern plant. Unfortunately, it's it's because of some of the dominant genes there, it's forced out a lot of the other imaginative balanced cannabinoids and terpenoids. So um, it, it's easy for me to be critical of it, but it's the same forces that pushed it that way has happened with alcohol. That's my point. Just, I don't just know before what to say I, to that because I have no idea what you're talking about. Right now. I have a couple of questions for Doc Block. And okay. just as you mentioned your family, your sons, we've had the alcohol cannabis um, comparison a little bit. I have a 17-year-old daughter, a 15-year-old daughter, and just in Nova Scotia, Canada, the hypocrisy of alcohol intake versus the my daughter's 17 party tomorrow, and her mom and the other adultra may let them have a beverage or two to celebrate their party underage it's a culture in nova scotia but if i was to pass on cannabis to those teenagers i'm in jail probably um shunned by everybody and in canada the biggest warning is 25 and under no cannabis no cannabis so my curiosity is the alcohol versus cannabis is 25 years of age your kind of concept and the other one was and again, this is me as a pharmacist. The one adverse effect is your comment on the hyperemesis of THC or the, the, those comments. Just your kind of approach and your experience as a physician on either one of those or opinions. Well, which I've been diagnosed with a couple of times. Yeah. So the, they're the two ones I have a lot of challenge with and difficulty, both politically and as a pharmacist. Well, I mean, let, let me just keep both thoughts in mind. Yeah. First, kids, and then alcohol, and, and then hyperemesis syndrome. Yeah. Um, to begin with, um, fortunately, my kids, from the few times they ever took a sip of beer or wine, it's yuck, you know? So, um, you know, give them a soft drink or something like that. Uh, it hasn't yet 
you know, resulted to where they're asking. Yeah. For, for kids, and mind you, look, um, one of the issues is whether it's uh, cannabis or alcohol prohibition or not, uh, people who talk even with the euphemism of recreational cannabis is yeah. adult use. Like kids don't get it? Come on. <laughs> yeah, yes, they do. And, and it's obvious that they do. So to what extent could it be harmful and how in whom is really the source of what you're bringing up? And yeah, as a dad, um, obviously alcohol for tasting it, um, just to know what it is or does is one thing. But no, I'm not the kind of dad who's going to let their kid go out and make themselves sick from it to where they're up chucking and are miserable around the porcelain throne <laughs> as a lesson. Okay, um, yeah. I'm going to try to discourage that because in those higher amounts, in those binge drinking things are when you get enough of the levels up to the brain cells that are the ones that I said before, irreversibly kills cells. And, and so while that's a concern, I'm not naive to know that it's less than 25 years old when they'll be able legally to get alcohol here. Yeah. Okay, Cannabis is different in one major respect for where that number 25 may or may not be relevant. And that's because we're not talking about uh, uh, medicines or drugs that kill cells in this case. We're talking about ones that are impacting a dynamic balance that is still growing. And that's a big difference. Yeah, your your question from cannabis comes down to when does the brain stop growing? And it's always changing and cells are always being replaced and dying. And that's part of the dynamics. But your body generally for your body's growth, you stop growing. I don't know. When did you guys stop getting taller? 18, 19, 17, 20 in those ranges, right? Most of you. So, yeah. so that's yeah, when guess. your body physically stops, but your brain and in the name of Woody Allen, who said, nobody messes with my brain. It's my second favorite organ. Uh, your brain's forming and still developing pathways that extend probably closer to those mid-20s. And they're developing maybe in subtle ways, but they are still developing, and their development circuitry is forever at that point kind of determined. And so cannabis does affect differently than alcohol as a toxin or a poison, and that's probably the major reason for why 25 is selecting your law yeah. and why to mess with that and to mess potentially with, I can't tell you if one cell pathway is going to impact decision-making. But remember before I said how few longitudinal studies there are looking at what happens when kids start young and keep going or adults start and keep going, the long-term studies. There's one that's frequently cited but criticized at the same time, and it was done in Dunedin. This is New Zealand. There's a Dunedin in Florida, too. But... That was a long-term study, and the thing that they were looking for is, is there any impact on IQ? That's your ability to problem-solve. And generally, you're, you're born with a certain IQ, and you, know, and you can get tested as an as a elementary school student right through adult. It generally stays in a certain range. And maybe you're brilliant, and it was tested that way when you were you know, first tested as a little kid or later. But you know, you're sort of expecting that your IQ number for just about everybody here, if you're normal, middle of the curve, it's going to be about 100. Okay, that's, that's an average IQ score. Okay, so more than that, a certain critical amount more, and you're a genius. Less than that, you're going to have some challenges potentially with life, or you've already experienced those, and you'd never quite achieved. 
that ability to problem solve. So IQ is measured that way. And cannabis and IQ was tested in that group. And the kids had a significant drop of their IQ of, of eight points. Okay, so you say, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it means number one, you need more longitudinal studies if you're gonna wanna confirm or refute the one few test, but you have to know what eight points off of 100 really means. And here's my, my only hopeful lecture of a science thing for a statistical thing. IQ being a, a bell-shaped curve means a score of 100 right in the middle is, you could think of it average, mean, average, but that 100 score is there. A loss of nine points to 92 is not 92, which means it's a low A. It's 92 by going from that score to 100 down the curve to a 92, which when you look at it, is no longer um, uh, an A, but you've brought it out to a 28th percentile. If you understand percentile, if, if you yeah. have a full range, okay? So if you don't want potentially from what few longitudinal studies there are for your kid to come out as the 28th sharpest pencil in a box of 100, <laughs> try to discourage upsetting with use starting young and the kids who were in that subset started pretty young around 15 years old and they kept using till their 30s and constantly never breaks that's that's an important distinction because you had other groups that were looked at in that study which didn't start as early or have as frequently or had breaks and it came back they didn't show all that it was the slow steady constant user for critical years 15 to 30 well there's 25 sandwich right in there guys that that's what i mean and that's where a lot of that concern comes from. So, um, does that give you a little different insight? That, that, that's a great answer. That that was a good, that was excellent. All right. So, so um, you know, that actually is all part of that. One of the next things that I said that guy um, Vincenzo de Marzo, we went from eating and sleeping yeah. and relaxing. Remember, I said forgetting was yeah. one of the things that he specifically said. Cannabinoids are there to help keep us in balance for. And by the way, this coming up is a fascinating uh, talk and another one which I had directly with Professor Mishulam and he's written in psych uh, psychology journals about this. Uh, it's engaging and I, I want to invite you now to think about this because it's profound. Forgetting is if you're a student and, you know, a doc and you're going through school, horrible thing, you got to remember everything, take the test. No, forgetting is not just normal, it's necessary. And, and if you think about forgetting, you can maybe have some people say, oh, would you really want to remember everybody who you ever saw all your life constantly? Uh, or, or you go to a ball game and there's, you know, 40,000 people in the stands that have to remember by looking around every single thing. It's terribly confusing and it doesn't let you really focus on what you need to do in a survival sense. So remembering everything is not good. You're designed to forget Lots of things. And if you're talking about pain, and this is where the subject of how one defines pain comes to terms, because pain is actually just an intolerable symptom of many diseases and injuries. It's not a diagnosis per se, is it? So if you understand pain that way, and it that's just the way is. I was taught, that's my fellowship after anesthesiology, along with addiction medicine, um, pain is supposed to be 
forgotten. If you don't think that's so, um, <laughs> our mothers would have only had us as one child and never had another kid. <laughs> no need in our language for the word brother or sister if that was really... That's awesome. That's cool, right? Uh, but but you have to forget extremes of pain or anxiety and, and intolerable symptoms, or really that may lie at the source of PTSD and those types of, of disorders. You you need to be able to forget, and and it's critical that it's not only those painful or intolerable things that your brain forgets. Your brain is far more sophisticated, because have you guys ever heard of pain being? thought of or talked about conceptually or philosophically on a continuum with pleasure? Yeah, in, 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 the, in the alternative lifestyles, yes. Okay, okay. So just bear that construct in your mind for a moment and think about this. A healthy mind should also not remember the extremes of pleasure. I don't know if I like that. If it that. did, we really would have great problems with dependencies and addictions and you're, you, if you think about it, you really don't remember those extreme pleasure themes profoundly. You may have fond memories of years ago for certain things, but try to conjure it up to the feeling and the memory at the exact moment and how impactful that is. You shouldn't remember that. Can, so, I, can I just break in? Because I'm, I'm, I'm curious and, and I want you to go back to it so I don't forget. ADHD, because it's in the same realm you're talking about. Okay, I have a I I I have severe ADHD. I'm on disability for it. I was a test study from the age of five to sixteen at the Hanks Clinic in Toronto. There's probably videos around me somewhere, you know, movies, actual movie <laughs> uh, somewhere. Um, at sixteen years old, I was, or at five years old, they put me on high high doses of Ritalin and Dexedrine. At sixteen, I was given the choice to go off where my doctor said, are you using cannabis? I said, no, but my friends are. He said, well, if you start using cannabis, stop taking the pills. So I started using cannabis and stopped taking the pills. I'm 57. I've learned how to deal with my anxieties by using cannabis to eradicate them and mushrooms. And um, I've been doing this show for 13 years because I want to tell people about it. Simple. We don't make any money at it, um, but there's a lot of questions about using cannabis when you have such a detrimental mental health issue like ADHD, bipolar, you know, what are your thoughts on it? You know, the, the interesting thing is, remember I told you when we started that my basis for how I look at medicine is through the lens of an anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. And and so maybe Lenny, you know, I talked about it being a clinical pharmacist or physiologist, but um, I have colleagues and I even have a niece, I told you mentioned a little while ago, twin nieces, one's an anesthesiologist recently in her practice and the other is a psychiatrist in her. But I had a chance through our university to watch their training over 10 years for what psychiatrists learn and how polarize that field in particular is about cannabis. And it's because some have training and their orientation to it may be as a staunch addictionologist and uh, what do we need another dependency forming medicine out there from that platform. And others 
seem to uh, value or appreciate its potential, and I'm emphasizing potential right now, uh, for something for anxiety disorders. Um, there's interesting um, data that comes out with respect to psychiatry because we're all concerned that everybody who um, we can help is really in touch with reality. In other words, out of touch with reality, diseases really are grouped into a word called psychosis, okay? Not neurosis, a little different, but psychosis, very different. There even seems to be certain predispositions with individuals that have genetic predispositions to it, where cannabis is not only not a good selection, but it may be something that really makes people worse. And there goes in the first do no harm thing we talked about in that. But it's really very poorly understood by most healthcare practitioners who would not be psychiatrists and be able to uh, diagnose and treat. So um, I, I would really love a consensus somehow to develop, not so much with psychiatrists as individuals, but with the training that physicians that I told you right now really don't have well enough to find a consensus among their own peers and colleagues to work together to find out who's it good for and who really shouldn't go anywhere near it. Mm. Um, and, and so I profess to you, Al, with all of that background, I'm not a psychiatrist. So I don't have the answer to your question as just a physician trained otherwise. It's a nuance, it's a specialty um, concern, and it's something where there are red flags that pop up legitimately and others who are perhaps stuck with a certain obstinance that the government says it's no good or not legal. So we're going to stay strictly from that platform and only deal with it when we have to upon yeah. its legalization. Yeah. Um, it's not skirting your question. It's telling no. you I'm probably not qualified to answer it. That's okay. You know, we've had uh, Dr. David Behrman on the show a couple of times, actually. Uh -huh. And so I've had that conversation with him. Uh, and, and I find uh, conversations specifically about mental health and cannabis, cannabis very interesting. If you thought you had to travel far to savor the Pad Thai of Bangkok or to taste the pastries of Paris... Take another look. With two times total points at grocery stores, your same kitchen can come with more cuisines. Sapphire Preferred from Chase. Make more of what's yours. Valid up to $1,000 in purchases per month from November 1st, 2020 to April 30th, 2021. Account subject to credit approval. Card guaranteed by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. Pip, 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 powder donut. <clears throat> Okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. In, more so than the, the, the chemical makeup of it. Yeah. I, I bring up certain things about that in the textbook that I told you... Um, that I wrote, well, I wrote really one of the first chapters concerning this whole subject in a textbook that was released by the Taylor and Francis group out of the UK in December. And the book's name is Advanced Therapeutics in Pain Medicine, but it covers these kinds of subjects. Mm. And the reason I'm mentioning it again is I, I earlier in the conversation mentioned the guy who's actually the godfather of, anesth of not anesthesia, mm. excuse me, 
of, of cannabis of Raphael Meshulam at Hebrew University in Israel. Well, I've been drooling to try and get him on the show. <laughs> uh, that'll be a challenge. But yes. He doesn't do it. <laughs> no, he doesn't do them. No. My textbook chapter has three in testimonial endorsements that you can read on my website. One is by Dr. Meshulam. The other is by Dr. Dave Behrman, who knows what I write and I mm-hmm. speak about. Mm-hmm. And the third is by another doctor who's an, uh, actually a pharmacist, Lenny, if you know yep. it. And you would know his name, but you may not know he's a PharmD. His name is Mahmoud El Sole. He's the guy who runs the farms at the University of Mississippi. He and I know each other as plantsmen. Okay. Um, so, uh, he, uh, so he's wrote some papers, am I correct? El Sole is the do- uh, well. I'm, yeah, E L dash A S O eight. Is that how you use El Sole? Yeah. And so I, I have some papers from that. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know that was a pharmacist. Or he Mahfoud, or Dave, and Mahmoud wrote the three testimony endorsements okay. about my writing, and I'm privileged that they're the ones who have been vetting what this conversation really entails, because they come from very different walks of life, and yet we have good dialogue about all of these subjects, and and I hold that in great value. So, um, just because of the limits of what's times left, I wanted to make sure we covered the forgetting part. And I'd also like to make sure that we we talk about your website as well before you go. Oh, I'll be happy to. And just so people hear it, uh, there's a little logo above my Nurturing Nature is the name of my consultancy. And uh, there's a website, nurturingnature.com. And you can also see through there the talks that I've given. The textbook chapter even has the author's narration of it. If you don't want to read it, you can listen in and take it in instead of... uh, the whole chapter, it, it would take you close to two hours to read, but uh, it's divided up into little sections, six sections, and they, they do flow. And there's a lot of this content I mentioned there because it's important, though, that I wanted to sort of cycle back because of how relevant COVID is right now for everybody. I'm in my home. I, mm. I have a, a studio now, a broadcast studio, so we can engage each other, but I'm used to traveling all around the country. Uh, uh, probably the one group that I gave a talk for, um, I was invited to be a keynote speaker at the Emerald Cup in 2017. And I wasn't invited because anybody wanted to necessarily hear a doctor speak at that event. Okay. Uh, it was huge. 23,000 people came through on the weekend. And uh, I was invited there because of friends of mine. And I'm telling this particularly to those of you who are into the seeds and growing, Darcy. Uh mm-hmm who know of me as a plantsman. So Kevin Jodry, uh, Alan Atkinson, if these names mean anything to you from people at the Emerald Cup, invited me to be part of it and shared with me what all good plantsmen like to share, the plants that we're all so proud of. Mine here are obviously very different being tropical ornamentals, but they at least valued my exchange with with what we can talk about as plantsmen. Same thing with with Mahmoud El-Soleil. There are different levels of conversation, but believe me, the experience of seeing the Emerald Cup firsthand, which was only the year after, well, the same year it started off being recreational in California, was a big eye-opener for me to see just, you know, where this whole industry has evolved to. Not critically, but just to be part of it, because Miami is a different world, and uh, it's not to say it's not there in the black market. Of course it is. Uh, Most arise from California. (laughs) But in the meantime, what's here is a very different climate for a public talk than I would encounter where you are or in California, where Dave Berman practices in Santa Barbara. Um, so anyway, I wanted to share that before going to the last of the five things that I told you 
was really the way I think of cannabis and the body's own system, endocannabinoids through eating, sleeping, relaxing, forgetting. And the last one I said that DeMarzo said 1998, long time ago, protecting. And where he's talking about there are all of those little intricacies, not the CB1 in the mind, but the whole body, CB2 mostly, that the body's impact of how it protects itself from diseases and injuries, memory through immune system things, are the very things that we have all going in us now, because nobody here is that young of a kid, that lets you stay alive with many diseases in your body now, not just diabetes, Al, but your body from the time you started with your A1C starting to creep up before you were an official diabetic, had been adjusting itself through natural endocannabinoids so that the disease didn't run rampant and kill you outright quickly. Yeah, my doctor's kind of... uh, uh, One of the things I haven't mentioned is I'm on my way down from about over 500 pounds at one time. I'm down to about 280 now. And uh, my doctor doesn't get why my diabetes isn't worse than it is. And it's probably the massive amounts of cannabis that I use every day. And he jokingly said, I should write a paper on you. So, yeah. Well, my, my point about what the, your body's own system's doing, mm. even without cannabis, okay, what it's designed to do, yep. it's designed to adjust your body in certain ways, subtly, to compensate for the impact of what that disease is progressing to. So if you think about, say, the way the heart and the blood circulation, atherosclerosis, okay, our diets here predispose to it and everybody gets it, even when you're younger, but it doesn't really impact like blood pressure and things like that until you get a bit older. Mm. And then heart disease and, and, and strokes and things like that related to plaques. All those things, your body has to compensate what goes to the other end organs, the kidneys in particular, along with the heart, have to have certain communications between them. Even what your mind and body in terms of what's called the brain-gut connection. You heard that ever before? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay? Many so, times. So yep. those are, that's all endocannabinoids. There's mm-hmm. nothing mystical about it anymore. That's what explains that holistic connection links. Okay? So where you're talking about now that it's connecting to, though, are CB2 receptors, and they're there to protect. That's the whole purpose. Mm. In fact, when you understand the mechanism of the disease... It's a very powerful tool. What physicians need to understand about cannabis, perhaps the more important thing that's learned is not CB1 and what it does to the brain, but in long-term, the things that these CB2 receptors do that keep our body in balance and in fact is the mechanism that our body uses that enables us to have a disease remain chronic. It's kind of like, it's kind of like our scales. Think about how powerful that knowledge is if you can understand the body system that allows you to live on with diseases. Your death certificate's going to have one cause of death on it, but along with it, you are going to, unfortunately, you all die, me too, with lots of other things that are held in a chronic state. They're doing that because of the impact balancing effect of cannabinoids on the whole body. And, and that's where the protect wisdom of what DeMarso, DeMarso found when he said eat sleep, relax, forget. Protect is the basis from which you're getting older, guys. And congratulations, it means your endocannabinoids are working. And 
I'm just saying it from that basis of the body's own system rather than from the perspective of the plant, which is the way a lot of you think about it without thinking about it. I've just explained to you, though, the way the body works with somebody who's never had a joint in their life because the body was not designing that receptor system millions, billions, if you want to go back a certain amount, half a billion years ago, before humans or mammals were ever on the planet, you had invertebrates, such a primitive life form that are now known to have endocannabinoids. So it's part of all life forms that are animals. Insects have a different system. But endocannabinoids have traced back long before the plant ever thought of appearing on the earth. It's not there because of us. It's there because it's found some very unique way through the development of very sophisticated plants, chemicals, and plants are ingenious for their chemicals, to interact with us to actually do a lot of what the plant can't do by itself, which is get from those eastern slopes of the Himalayas all the way around the world. You know how the plant got there? With human agriculture. It was not like like a fern has a little spore that flies with air to move from point A to point B. It was taken And they're existentially rooted. Yeah. They can't flee threats, nature, things like that. So they have to find ingenious ways to get from here to there. Yeah. A fruit tree makes a fruit. So an animal eats the fruit and poops the seeds out someplace else. Mm-hmm. The plant grows up over there, not mm-hmm. back where it came from. Mm-hmm. Sure, it wasn't from Monty. Sure, plant. it's not from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the sparrow and the coconut. Sure. This, this is this is real, okay? This is real, and all you got to do is look at plants from the plant's perspective. Go ahead and read Michael Pollan's book, The Botany of Desire, where cannabis is one of the five plants he talks about. If you've never done it, it's a wonderful read. It's fascinating, but it's basically when you work with plants a lot, you start to think of things about from the plant's perspective. I don't try to remember the names of these plants anymore. Now that we got genetics, that defines what the plant is. I don't have to remember a fancy, you know, Linnaeus name with a genus and a species that changes because humans have tried to name and categorize plants for millennia and it's failed. (laughs) And now that we know genetics and how actually these things are comprised, that becomes really the plant's name. How closely it's related to something else is a different discussion. But for a name... As soon as I meet a plant that cares the hell what I call it, I'll let you know. <laughs> I, grow lots of plants. I grow lots of plants. And so I don't care if it's a name, you know, cannabis sativa. No, there's no cannabis sativa. Now that's everything's hybrids out there. And yeah. I must discourage people from trying to think sativa like being uplifting versus indica, you know, and common. No, 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 no. That's a different way. But the names themselves are almost meaningless. And, uh, when I went to my first dispensaries and I saw the names that were on some of the bottles, not the chemical content. I look at things from chemotype, but obviously phenotype representing the modern plant is more generally indica-ish, but sativas, no, I'm not even thinking of it that way. Find me things that are one-to-one in balance ratios between THC and CBD with a robust terpene profile that could feature different things for different purposes And then you got something that at least is a better starting point, particularly lower amounts where you can work up. But that's because physicians seem to forget in this space that the lowest effective dose is really the one that makes the most sense. You're less likely to see undesirable side effects. Again, not that euphoria, it has anything wrong with it in of itself. But some people who don't want to feel buzzed are just going to recognize that 
hey, how can I have this without necessarily, you know, being high or mm-hmm. they might say it impaired. I, I do that with, with uh, psilocybin. I microdose once a week, twice a week, sometimes with 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2, mm-hmm. uh, 0. 0.3 even. Uh, I do not want any of the trippy shit at all. Uh, I have enough focus, focus issues on my own. Thanks. You know, but it, 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 I tell people when they ask questions, why? Because it's knocked the depression out of me. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked right before we went live on the show mm. about psilocybin a little bit. And I, yep, yep. I told you I, I, I didn't <coughs> want to speak about it in the same context as cannabis. But yep. I know what I read and I know what a study shows. And I can see how sometimes what what Chinese healers refer to as surround the dragon in acupuncture. OK, meaning you don't find one magic bullet. You surround the disease state. So if you want to think of it, even going back to some of the earliest treatments for HIV and AIDS, it was a cocktail, a mixture of things. Well, that whole philosophy of how healers have used plants since ancient times still is very sound for the way I look at at approaching a disease, especially with plant-based medicines. You'll be hard-pressed to find uh, an Eastern versus Western healer, but the Eastern healer of Chinese medicine is never going to give a patient one herb. They're going to put a whole bunch of things together and say, this is what you take. So not that that's the way I practice modern medicine. I'm trained in Western medicine and I do for a moment will not be discarding the advances that Western medicine's therapeutics and diagnostic tools have conventionally taught me medicine. I don't use it to, as an alternative with Eastern I use it to integrate with it, to complement. Uh, I almost dispel the word alternative because it implies that you're rejecting some of those advances that Western medicine takes. So I find that perhaps the best use is to include it within a general medical practice, not necessarily from a physician who only sees patients who want cannabis and that's all they authorize or prescribe where you are, but can't do that in the U.S. So whether it's recommended or authorized or whatever they're all euphemisms but it's providing access and and so i I very much respect physicians who know enough and in states where it's legal can incorporate it within their regular practice but not so much ones who use it exclusively psilocybin is a little different thing though al and we touched upon this because as much time as i've spent this last hour and a half trying to impress upon you the importance of knowing how cannabis works within mm-hmm. the body, mm-hmm. how endocannabinoids, what they're there to do, not the fancy names, the anandamide 2AG, things like that, but the actual framework of what it does, the eat, sleep, protect, forget, and, and, and relax. Those things have clinical relevance. Psilocybin um, obviously is a psychedelic, and maybe those are why you're only taking so little, so it doesn't you know, totally enrapture you. Yes. Um, but it, it, in my opinion, probably works in ways that resets the brain in a sense. We have certain anesthetics called associative anesthetics like ketamine that, you know, do a shift re reset type of a thing like you're rebooting your computer. It's all conjecture for me that that may be how it works or contributes to when it taken along with cannabis seems like it may have potential for being efficacious for pain, for helping pain. Mm. 
So I know you're ready to, to say something there, but overall, what's different with cannabis is that I can't tell you how it works. I don't know. Yeah. Nobody knows yeah. how psychedelics But work. they're going to learn. They're going to yeah, learn. I, let's hope so. And I, hope I, so. I really hope, I hope to God that they do not take the same path as they've done with cannabis in the whole learning thing. Because you know what? They will even say now, Health Canada says cannabis is not a medicine, even today. It's on their website. Go have a look. Okay. Well, it's it's actually as a licensed producer, we cannot make any medical claims about cannabis products at all. So we can't tell you that our products, what products are good for sleeping, which products are good for pain or anything like that, because we're prohibited by Health Canada. That's right. Any medical claims. That's right. But what I what I see happening with psilocybin and other psychedelics is people are just doing it i've seen several articles about covid and the fact that people are getting depressed they're suffering more and more from mental health issues inflicted by this pandemic that we're going through and they're choosing to use psychedelics or cannabis to relieve that pressure and i do it like i said twice a week sometimes well, again, not being naive to what goes on with patient use, okay, whether cannabis mm-hmm. and or psilocybin here. I'm, I'm living a, a community that's famous for drugs going back to Miami Vice and cocaine days mm-hmm. when I'm a resident in training. But training and, and medicine and education is absolutely impacted by prohibition. You mentioned about what is not, you know, written in Canada's uh, information there or or basically the ways they've rejected or accepted saying it's they've, legal it's they've legal ex- they've uh, sorry they they have accepted psilocybin and in fact they are doing studies in Nova Scotia they're allowing physicians to prescribe uh at their I guess their own will uh patients to use psilocybin under their care I but you, they're taking the steps needed but they have not completed the medical program for cannabis use well, you know what? Doctors should be learning about this stuff. And and here's one of the confounders. I'm going to say it in a way that hopefully brings it to light for why so few doctors really, unfortunately, have a deeper level of understanding of these things. Because what happens is, having been associated with medical schools and involved with higher education and being invited to lecture at places, including uh, up in the famous schools in the Northeast and and in Florida, South Carolina, more recently, these are schools that may not have medical programs, but are not really working this kind of content into their medical students' education. And the reason was a little unclear to me until recently, but here's why. Um, medical students in the years they're in school have a lot to learn. And you can go to a medical school in the States and graduate uh, with an MD, but you can't practice anywhere in the country until you have a state license, whichever state you choose to practice in. And state licenses are only uh, achievable after one passes a federal standardized test called the national board exams. And it's a national test. So, Guess what's not asked about on a national board exam because the national federal government regards it as having no known medical use by definition of what is the definition of Schedule One, the prohibited substance uh, from the Controlled Substance Act, cannabis. Mm. So that's persistent. And but yet they hold they hold the patent. 
no, no, yeah. um, uh, that's wrong. Um, the patent was for research. It's freely mm. shared. It has been since. Okay. That that's uh, that's a message that some people have really rather misrepresented. It has nothing to do with the patent. It's the re- the reason it has to do with education, though, Al, is because of of indices and indexes and rankings. Mm. Uh, you guys know what U.S. News and World Report is for how they rank schools. Mm-hmm. Oh, they rank all different kinds of schools, right? Um, they do, including uh, medical schools. And medical schools are looked at frequently from two basic uh, perspectives. One's their research programs and education programs. The the rankings of medical schools in our country hold in very high esteem the performance of their students on that national board exam. When you have that, you have a curricula then that the students get that to a certain extent is going to be geared so that their students do perform well on that exam. It's the biggest feather in the cap that the schools should have and their students should be if able they, to master. If they don't, interest. people won't come to their school. So if you put a subject as complex in a needed schedule there, it means the fact that you have to pull something out or squeeze something else in. Yeah, But it's not yeah. going to be asked about in any material way on that important exam that all students strive to perform well in, and all educators it want should, their students. It should be. I had a conversation. We've only got a couple of minutes left. I have a, had a conversation with an emergency, a head nurse of an emergency department while I was waiting for the boy to be looked at. And we started talking about cannabis. Her husband uh, is medicating and has a license. And I said... Why aren't doctors and nurses uh, being taught about what's going on with cannabis? She said, well, they offer courses, but nobody wants to take them. And the younger, the younger students coming up are being taught a little bit. But the first thing a young doctor is hypermimesis. That's what you've got. You know, you've got morning sickness. You know, I, I just... Well, I think it's you know, silly that I, I think it's silly that in two, you know 2021 now mm-hmm. with everything we know and most of the things we know is from the community and from the patients themselves on a medical level okay why more isn't being done that's all All right let, let's go backwards again we started okay. and we talked about some things a long time ago so 2021 let's say it's negative 2021 let's say it's 2000 or 3000 BC I want to really go back now to give you some perspective on how this information is shared healer to healer, healer to patient. And it's going to be quick, but uh, it's profound. And it's one of the reasons I'm a a plant guy. In really prehistoric times, ancient healers that understood the value of plants as medicines had to actually be good horticulturists, farmers. They had to keep their plants alive or they would have lost their formulary. And then they're not regarded as either a good plantsman nor a healer. So I'm looking at the world four, five, six thousand years later and saying, I'm glad I know about plants. It gives me a different understanding of healing. If I kill my plants, I'm probably not a good healer. And what do you guys think when you go to your doctor's office, if you're in the waiting room and you see in that waiting room a sick or dying plant, what do you think about that, doc? Hmm. I get that. Found, there's get there's, there's so a difference between a healer. And and plants, they're all interlinked historically today and yesteryear. But there's a difference between a healer and a practitioner. Uh, I guess you can say that. Sure. 
Yeah. And especially because probably people refer to the latter through a license. Yeah, probably. Because there's a lot of healers out there. I know some of them uh, that are doing the same work that licensed doctors are doing uh, with patients directly. No hospitals involved. No offices involved. Come to your house. And they're not practicing medicine. They're telling people like Marcel and like Darcy and myself and others that we've had on the show, what we're using and what we're doing. You know, where a doctor can't do that, they tell you what they've learned. So a healer tells you somebody's been actually putting their hands on and doing it. You, the uh, first thing I asked you when you came into our chat earlier is, have you ever used cannabis? The answer was yes, but not for many years. Uh, you have a medical reason to do that. You have a professional reason to not be using it. Uh, but you have tried it. Most doctors have not. No, most doctors lie. Okay. Well, I mean, where I grew up. And, Fair and enough, the Marcel. Where that I grew up in the 70s, it was everywhere. Yeah. And, and people experienced it, but... It, it doesn't mean that it's part of my life, perhaps the way it is as part of yours. Yes. And I'm not being judgmental and no. I hope you're not of me either. No, no. But it gives me some insight and it gives me also insight because I know many friends, colleagues and people I associate with that do and are mm. fans of that plant. But at a certain point, you sometimes have to wonder if you're assessing someone which is in control of the other. It's not always that the human's in control of the plant. I have a mm. tremendous respect for the power of plants chemicals. And on that statement, I, I think it's perhaps sometimes easier to look at things objectively without being necessarily involved. Mm. And looking at oh. things from an anesthesiologist's perspective for one final historical little footnote, anesthesia became a specialty only after discovery of ether in the 1840s. It took an anesthesiologist, no, a general doc just looking around and observing things who went to events that were sideshows called ether frolics to watch people getting high on recreational ether, passing out, boom, ow, that must hurt. No, it didn't. <laughs> Somebody cut a cyst off the back of his neck, wrote it up, and gets full credit for the discovery of modern anesthesia. So important is it is that... Today, there's actually a doctor's day. It's March 30th every year. And the reason that date was chosen, it was meant to represent the kindness and compassion that physicians provide in alleviating pain. The most important event in history that they could come up with was the discovery of ether, the date of March 30th in 1842, I believe it is. Crawford Long in Georgia, Georgia State, is given the credit for the discovery of that and the importance is Doctor's Day's recognition today for the kindness and compassion and importance that physicians have in alleviating pain and suffering. So a recreational use and observation changed medicine forever. And I wanted to share that with you as an anesthesiologist and amateur historian. They use, they use, uh, they use uh, oxygen now, uh, recreational. Yeah, well, so. nitrous oxide was popular back then too. Another staple of dentistry and even modern anesthesia still. Wow. Um, but th these are things that are observations that later turned into medical application, the same way that cannabis now is going through a process of medicalization. It's a wonderful word. 
and you can read a book on that, William Dolphin author. Um, it, it's a process, guys, and be patient. It's happening, and the same thing happened with Ether. It didn't happen overnight. It's changing uh, things about how we look at medicine today because of being able to look into the body. Modern anesthesia for the first time, and cannabis is going through that same process. It's drawn out. There's other legal challenges and all. Mm. Uh, I'm not approaching it that way other than trying to be a pragmatic doc to say it's coming. I see it. If you understand how it works, it's a wonderfully powerful tool to think about the potential of for future use. And on that note, I could sit here and listen to you talk all night long, uh, but uh, I want to know if the guys have anything up uh, that they want to bring up. We have a, you know, we're a little over, but, you know. No, this is fun. I just want to bring them back. Yeah, we're we're definitely, you've got to come back, uh, Dr. Block. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Some of it I honestly didn't get, but (laughs) a lot of it I did, you know. So, um, well, hey. You know what, Al, that feedback's good for me. We can talk offline where it was and. Um, uh, it'll help if we come back again to keep it real. You are more than welcome to join us anytime you have the time. How's that? Love it. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. We've been talking with Dr. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Block, and would you please give us your, your URL just quickly once again? Nurturingnature.com. This is the 420 Radio Show. We are here Fridays at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern. What time where you guys are, Marcel? 8. 8 p.m. out there in Nova Scotia land. And uh, check, us, check us out at uh, 420radio.ca. And uh, we're going to say good night. Good night, guys. Thank you very much, night, Jeffrey. Huh? Appreciate night. it. Good no, night. thank you. It was really cool. Yeah. See you, guys. So what are you doing? You're listening to Lifestyle Radio. The opinions expressed during this show are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of their associated organizations or Lifestyle Radio. The recording has stopped. This is Derek's O'Reilly Auto Parts story. After the third time jump-starting my car, I finally realized my battery was dying. So I stopped by O'Reilly to have it checked. They tested it right there in the parking lot. It was bad, real bad. But they helped me find the right battery for my car and even installed it for free. Now my car starts like new. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Spring is the perfect time to refresh your space, and Haverty's wide selection and endless custom options make it easy. And right now, everything's on sale, so you won't just save on one thing, you'll save on everything. So go ahead and make your office space work harder, your guest room more inviting, and your living room more livable. With thousands of fabric and leather options to choose from, you get furniture just the way you want it. So whatever room you're looking to refresh, right now, you can get it for less at Haverty's, because everything's on sale. No commercials here. And that's 
that's it for this week's episode. Add us to your podcatcher or on iTunes now so that you can make sure you never miss out on another second of our wonderful podcast. We would hate for you to miss out. Have a great week, everyone. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.